On the 4th of May, 1483, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, escorted his nephew, young King Edward V, into London, accompanied by his new best friend, Henry, Duke of Buckingham. He displayed wagon loads of weapons, which gave credence to his assertion that the Woodvilles had been plotting against him, and, for many in the council, it was enough that Gloucester said there was a plot, even though we can be all but certain that no such plot existed. The council, shorn of its Woodville members, was sympathetic to Gloucester, and Lord Hastings positively glowed about how the Duke had managed events. But the council was not simply going to hand over control to Gloucester, even though they expected him to be heavily involved both in the plans for the King's coronation and in the shaping of the new regime. The council always intended that Edward would be crowned swiftly, and in that case there would be no need for a protector at all. However, as we have seen, that arrangement was not in Gloucester's interests. So he postponed the coronation of Edward V until the 22nd of June, on the grounds that it could not be organised any sooner. Most councillors probably agreed with him that a delay was sensible. In the ensuing weeks, the councillors worked in two groups. One discussed arrangements for the coronation, while another met separately with Gloucester. You could argue that this made some sense because otherwise important council business might be swamped by the minutiae of coronation planning. Yet it was not exactly common practice, and what little evidence we have hints that this division of the council caused mutterings amongst some of its members. What, some wondered, was Gloucester discussing with his small group of councillors? Though such thoughts do not constitute opposition to the protector, they do at least suggest some unease. Again, let's pause to take stock. We have dismissed the Gloucester was a monster theory, and so far Gloucester had acted in what many thought was a very reasonable manner. But his actions thus far had to have consequences. The council, for example, expected that Rivers and the other prisoners, already sent north to Gloucester's strongholds, would be tried and evidence of guilt supplied. This was, after all, not the Wild West where a hanging judge could just decide to top people without just cause. The problem for Gloucester is that he did not have just cause, because, as he very well knew, Earl Rivers had not actually been plotting against him. The trouble with his preemptive strike was that he could not prove Rivers' guilt. A decade or more earlier, the Earl of Warwick had set an uncomfortable precedent when in 1469 he executed Rivers' father and William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, when both were basically following the orders of their king. Gloucester found himself in a similar position to Warwick because Rivers had committed no crime. Having taken the plunge and arrested Earl Rivers, he could hardly have him brought before the council for trial. Worse still, if Rivers were to be acquitted, then it would spell absolute disaster for Gloucester. So Rivers and the other captives remained under lock and key in the north. In London, 
councillors would have seen no evidence of a Woodville threat, since the Queen was in sanctuary at Westminster with little opportunity and no resources to challenge Gloucester. The council was keen to heal the breach at the heart of government by getting the new king crowned and bringing back a degree of stability. They would have been surprised then to learn that by the 11th of June Gloucester was sending his man Sir Richard Ratcliffe north with letters calling for the urgent dispatch of troops to London. These letters were sent to various northern lords including the Earl of Northumberland and also to the city of York. What then was the urgent need for these additional forces? If we are to believe the explanation offered afterwards, Gloucester faced a new plot by not only the Woodvilles but also William Hastings. We have already seen though that with the key Woodville players already neutralised they simply could not have put together a coherent plot in June 1483. However the Queen did still hold one significant card. With her in sanctuary she had King Edward's younger brother, Richard Duke of York, the presumed heir should anything happen to his elder brother. Gloucester began to work to persuade the Queen to allow her younger son out of sanctuary to live with his brother. Though it is difficult to see how the boy presented any threat to Gloucester in early June, events were to move swiftly in that particular month. What about Lord Hastings then? Why on earth would Lord Hastings who had congratulated Gloucester on all that he had done so far, be plotting against him, and with the Woodvilles of all people, when Dorset was his most bitter enemy. It seems very unlikely, surely. Not only unlikely, but in practice virtually impossible, since Hastings' main military power, the Calais garrison, was still where it was supposed to be, in Calais. Even assuming such a plot was practical, what possible reason could Hastings have had for joining with the Woodvilles, against whom he himself had warned Gloucester in the first place? Ambition or malice against Gloucester? We know that it could not have been either of those. Only one cause could possibly have united Hastings with the Queen and Rivers, let alone Dorset. A threat to the young King Edward. As the closest friend of the boy's father, Hastings would not countenance any action which threatened him. Though there is no evidence of a plot against Gloucester in June, we have been there before, in April at Northampton. To Gloucester, nobles having secret conversations in dark passageways meant a plot. He was not going to hang about waiting for a smoking gun or in his case perhaps a dripping dagger. Gloucester was a pragmatist and if his interests were threatened as we have seen several times already he did not hesitate to act. Hence his actions in the middle of June. First the urgent letters north and then a most singular event even by Wars of the Roses standards. On the 13th of June, 1483, Lord Hastings, loyal stalwart of the previous regime and apparent ally of Gloucester, was dragged from the council chamber and brutally beheaded at once. 
even for medieval times, it was a shocking event. The summary execution of a leading councillor in London was almost unprecedented, and it sent a shockwave through the political establishment which would have very serious and ongoing effects. There are two questions here. First, why was Hastings arrested? And second, why was he executed without delay? No imprisonment, no trial and no evidence. The answer to the first question is clearly that Gloucester believed Hastings to be a threat. Of that we can be certain. What is less certain is why Hastings was suddenly seen as a threat. It might have been because he suspected Gloucester was considering taking the throne from his young nephew. But equally it might just have been that Hastings opposed the use of force to prize the king's brother out of sanctuary. Most likely we'll never know. You might wonder why though, if Hastings had actually known of Gloucester's intention to seize the throne, he would put himself at such risk. Why didn't he just flee to Calais and bring back the troops? Did he believe that he was safe at a council meeting? If he did, then he was wrong. So then to the second question. Why the immediate death of Hastings? This is, I think, a more interesting question. It could not have been a spur-of-the-moment overreaction by Gloucester, since he had clearly arranged in advance for his men to be ready outside the council chamber. Why could Hastings not just be locked up like Rivers? Was he that dangerous? Well, he was influential, and he could call upon the Calais garrison. But even so, why did it have to be done that minute, with not even a few hours delay? It suggests that whatever Hastings knew, or Gloucester thought he knew, about Gloucester's plans, he was not going to be given the opportunity to pass on his concerns to anyone else, let alone be given a trial. We can see that Gloucester was very worried at that moment, because at the same time as Hastings was taken, John Morton, Bishop of Ely, and Lord Thomas Stanley, among others, were arrested. Lord Stanley, like Hastings, was a key figure in the kingdom and not to be trifled with lightly. By contrast with Hastings, Stanley had a broad and powerful base of support in England, which might, if provoked, cause chaos for Gloucester in the northwest. Gloucester would need to be very careful how he handled Thomas Stanley. The execution of Hastings was the pivotal event of the summer of 1483. Why? Because if William Hastings, staunch Yorkist and the man who more than any other had brought Gloucester to his present position of power could be treated thus, then no man could feel safe. Now I know that many of you will admire Gloucester, but from the 13th of June onwards it was blindingly obvious at the time, and should be since, that he intended to root out any opposition to his domination of the kingdom. From that moment on, there was an atmosphere of uncertainty, suspicion and fear at court. The arrest of Rivers and Grey at Northampton was one thing, but the execution of Hastings and the arrest of Stanley in the council chamber were quite another. 
There were only about half a dozen seriously powerful magnates in England, and since the death of Edward IV, Gloucester had imprisoned or executed three of them, Rivers, Stanley and Hastings, and made a fourth, Henry Duke of Buckingham, his most trusted ally. What conclusion would any experienced courtier draw from that? It was a coup d'etat, and we can be pretty certain that the question on everyone's mind at court was what was Gloucester going to do next? And when it became known that Gloucester had sent for a northern army, it only accentuated the sense of alarm. Well, one of the things he did next was release Thomas Stanley. Given Stanley's power base in the northwest, Gloucester was rightly wary of alienating him. He was released on good behaviour, as they say, but you would have to think that whatever the views of the wily Lord Stanley and his many clients about Gloucester before the 13th of June, they were unlikely to trust him quite so much afterwards. All this, remember, was before any open suggestion of Gloucester taking the throne. But Gloucester's actions had created a power vacuum around him, and he knew that without substantial noble allies he could not hope to retain control of the kingdom. Thus, Stanley had to be released and placated. Others, like Northumberland, had to be brought into the fold, and new men, such as John Howard, had to be recruited with promises of advancement. What was in Gloucester's mind at that point? If only we knew, but his next step was a hint. On the 16th of June, frustrated that the king's ten-year-old brother, Richard, was still in sanctuary, Gloucester sent more soldiers to Westminster, and the Queen was given no choice. Either she handed her son over, or the soldiers would violate sanctuary and take him. Young Richard was then taken to the tower to be with his brother. They were not in a dungeon, but equally they had little freedom of movement. The young king's coronation was due to take place on Sunday the 22nd of June, a few days later. But remember that the moment Edward V was crowned, Gloucester could not rely upon keeping his powerful position. It must have been crystal clear to Gloucester how the new king would view his actions, and soon the coronation was postponed again, this time until November. Plans for calling the first parliament of the new reign were also shelved. When the coronation was postponed for the second time, and for so many months, it caused only consternation and confusion. While the first postponement had seemed sensible, the second seemed rather odd. On Sunday the 22nd of June, the growing uncertainty came to an abrupt end when Ralph Shaw delivered a sermon at St Paul's Cross in London, where he put forward for the first time the suggestion that Richard Duke of Gloucester was, in fact, contrary to popular belief, the only true and legitimate heir of York. The cat was now well and truly out of the bag. <laughs>